Hello and welcome back to Kvikminderpod, an Icelandic cinema podcast. I'm Rob Watts, and on this podcast, me and my good friend Ellie Cawthorn chat about Icelandic film. So far on our journey through the films of 21st century Iceland, we've been up to see some sheep farmers in the north and hung around the capital, Reykjavik, with two very different groups of people. This week, we're using Reykjavik as a base and journeying out to the suburbs and beyond to solve a murder. In Jar City, or Mirin, from 2006, we see just how far Baltasar Kormakur has come as a director in quite a short space of time. And that title isn't a nickname for the capital, rather a room full of history and rather gross things in jars. To find out more, listen on as we discuss Jar City. Hello! Hello. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. It's very gross and rainy outside, so perfect day for a podcast. Yes, and I was thinking it's very much like the weather that we see in the film we're discussing today. Yep, grey upon grey upon grey. Yeah, pretty miserable. But thankfully, well, from my end anyway, there's been no kind of drama, the likes of which we'll be talking about. (laughs) From your end, at least. Yeah, I don't want to assume for you that there's been no child death or murder anyway. Yes, but we are talking about Jar City from 2006, or Mirin Mm -hmm. is the Icelandic name. And can you guess who directed this one? Um, Is it fair to say I'm guessing if I already know? No, but you can tell us (laughs) anyway. I can tell you. Um, Balthazar Kumakur. Yes, 101 Reykjavik guy. And this is his sort of breakthrough hit from 2006 Mm. um it's based on a novel which is the first in an well the fourth in the icelandic run but the first in those that got published in english of a series of crime thrillers based around the detective erlendur how does that work then they just didn't publish one of them in english they thought this one's a bit of a crap second one yeah like maybe three books that they didn't publish then this one did Ah, okay. Did well, and then they went from there, I think, anyway. I've never read the first three, but I've read a few of them. Uh, And so we didn't, I don't think we even mentioned it in the 101 Reykjavik podcast, but that was an adaptation as well Mm. of a novel by Hal Grimm or Helgeson. And both times, Cormacur's directed and written the screenplay. So it'll be quite interesting to see how this one compares to that one, because it's basically done the same thing, but with a completely different style of novel and film. But I would argue that those six years between 2000 and 2006, Balthazar's been off there doing some good work because it, those years have done him good because this, to me, was a much stronger film than One and One Reykjavik. Absolutely. And in fact, I wouldn't ever have guessed, unless I'd known beforehand, as I did, that they were by the same director. I don't know if you felt like that too. I probably would say, yeah, um, it's not a distinctive style that he has. No. But watching it this time round, having so recently watched 101 Reykjavik, there are a couple of kind of in-jokes or camera-style things going on that are similar. But yeah, it's it's so different as a film that you couldn't really draw a comparison. Mm. So, quick synopsis, and this is probably the briefest one that I'll do all series. So, a young girl dies of natural causes, an old man is murdered, Detective Erlander investigates and discovers that the two deaths may be linked. This is a film about history, family, and GDPR. <laughs> you really had me until GDPR, and then I was out. 
make it sound incredibly boring. But yes, in a sense, yes. You get my meaning, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so this was the most popular film in Iceland for 2008. Mm. Uh, as far as I know, it's one of, if not the most commercially successful films to have come out of Iceland. And obviously kickstarted Kormakur's career. He went over to Hollywood a couple of years later and remade another film of his called Reykjavik Rotterdam. And it's based on the most successful writer in Iceland at the time, at least. And yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, I can totally see why it was had had a lot of mass appeal because it's an absolutely classic crime story, isn't it? A crime mm-hmm. drama. I mean, to me, it, it felt, and I actually don't mean this as an insult. It may, it may <laughs> sound like one. It seemed to me, you know, like a kind of Sunday night ITV crime drama. But Oh, ITV. With, oh, maybe that is a bit insulting. But, <laughs> um, but with perhaps, you know, more of an inventive story and um, high production values. It's the kind of thing that I think you probably weren't seeing on TV in 2007 but that you mm. are now. And to, and to me, I think TV is now much more the domain of this kind of detective um, procedural than film in many ways. Absolutely. And I kept watching it thinking, this seems rather slight for a, for a crime thriller. I'm, I'm basically deep in uh, The Bridge, the TV series, mm. the Swedish one, which tells us similar stories but they're much more complex and there's far more characters and it spans 10 episodes and I just I sort of kept thinking this is awesome but it's not the bridge Mm. you know it's it doesn't have those production values and it's not as necessary just everything seems to happen really fast I think also it's a classic case of um I used to devour things uh, Agatha Christie's so Miss okay. Marvel and Poirot which obviously mm-hmm. are massively different to this but it's the same premise that you have usually an hour and a half to mm-hmm. rattle through a murder who our suspects are why they might have been involved and get to the end and suddenly you're just like um it, it gives it a very kind of contained feel but I think more so this feels more like something like um Midsummer. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. Actually, that's <laughs> wow. too hard. I don't. I actually really enjoyed this one. I don't mean this as an insult to say it feels like something like Midsummer Murders, but I mean in that it feels very contained. So really, we don't have many suspects. We're not introduced to that many characters. So we kind of know from the start that these two storylines are heading mm-hmm. towards one another, and it quite quickly becomes clear that there's only one logical conclusion to that. Did you think so? Yes, and I was going to ask you about that because I can't quite remember how I felt after I watched it the first time. Because I think I said before, this was the first Icelandic film I ever saw. It's the only one I've ever seen at the cinema. And that was obviously way back in 2008. Um, I think that's when it came out in England, maybe 2007. Hi. 
bara mála framleggja dómnum hans og loka málinu og allir hressir. Þetta er svona lærir Ameríku. Ég trúi að brilið því brilið ekki ekki að rút. Það er ekkert eðlilegt við það að missa barn. Hvað er það að geta gert um tíu, Skalli? Ekki segja mér um sér dúlið. Hittugri! Hefur þú ekki að parti því að þeir veit allir að ég er dóttið? Það er líka að vera að bökka mig á því. En hvað um föður hennar? Ekki var hún engildin. Hólberg nöðgaði stúrku nokkrum árum áður en Grétar hvað? Þetta var engin helvítið stöðugun. Hefur þið verið nöðgað? Ha? Skítalegt! Skítalegt aftur! It's a bit like in a... A TV romance or a film romance that the first person you see a character interacting with is always the person they end up with. You know, the best friend from the beginning or the guy they bump into or whatever is always the person at the end. And that to me is a kind of how often these crime dramas work, that a person that you introduce to at the start kind of has to be the murderer at the end. Because if at the five minutes towards the end you're introduced to a new character and they're the murderer, you'd feel quite robbed. It feels like a cop-out, yeah. So we start, obviously, we start with that, with the start with a random guy called Urn. His daughter looks very, very sick. She's in hospital. And then you see her, like, within three minutes, dead and lying on a table in a really kind of striking and yeah. nasty image, which kind of sets the tone, I suppose. It's like, mm. yeah, this is about death uh, and the death of children and what that means and what history and what that can force, or not necessarily force, but motivate people to then do. And so you see Ern, and you're like, okay, we don't really know who you are, but we know your daughter's died. And then instantly we're off with Detective Erlander, curmudgeonly, but quite funny. Yeah, yeah, 100% <laughs> quite funny. What did you think of Erlander? I like him, and I have a soft spot for that actor anyway, Ingvar Eggert Sigurdsson. And I think that's probably because this was the first film I saw and he's popped up in a lot of things since. I'm going to say it again. He's entrapped as a policeman, a very different policeman. <laughs> really? As is the actor who plays his sidekick or one of his sidekicks, Sigurdur Olli. The actor is Björn Hlina Haraldsson. They both end up, turn up entrapped, but as very, very different characters. But Erlander himself, like, I, I really warm to him. Yeah. And I don't know why, because when I read the books, I really don't. I feel like he's far more engaging and empathetic and sympathetic in the film than he is in the books. He comes across for me in the books as very cold. And even with his daughter, who we'll talk about in a minute, mm. in the books, he's, it's, it's a much more fractious relationship. Whereas here, he, he knows what he's doing. He's very, you know, straightforward, to the point, but also funny. Yeah, well, I, I kind of get what you mean. I can see how that um, translation would happen from the page to the screen in that he was cold. If you looked at the script of this, you would think he's really cold and clinical. Mm. Whenever he's angry, he's not really shouting. He's just kind of coldly punching people or There's whatever. There's like a, a mini Jack Reacher moment at his <laughs> yeah. flat. I like... I, my recollection of that character is not that, but... Yeah. But also, even when he's, you know, when he's being kind to his daughter, he's he's doing showing his kindness through deeds, isn't he? Through, not through words or expressions necessarily, but I think it's something in the performance that gives it that warmth. 
So even though he's being, you know, a classic man-shaped man, detective, I am traumatised, <laughs> I engage with no one, there is something kind of behind that, whether it's in his eyes and the kind of like tiny little micro-expressions that you get from him. So I think it's mm-hmm. definitely performance-based. Um, maybe you're meant to read between the lines in the book to get that, but... Possibly. I mean, I, I, guess, I guess that just goes to show what a performance it is and how yeah. he manages to imbue the character with such depth of kind of emotion and character he definitely falls into the classic um detective in fictional or tv stereotype which is um you know harrowed by the things he's seen over the years can't have a functioning normal life he's always eating a takeaway we'll come back to that but (laughs) you know and he's got this difficult relationship with his daughter I feel like that's such a trope, isn't it? The detective. There's never a detective who just goes home and is like, "Hi, kids. Hi. I closed the door <laughs> on my day, and now I've totally got a normal, functioning life." Oh, absolutely not. No, he's he's got no wife to be seen. Uh, a you know, a heroin addicted daughter who is pregnant by God knows who, and this seems to be just general behaviour from her and. He does, he cares and he obviously pays off her debtors and whoever else he needs to. And it's, a, it's yeah, he's just like, the, the, he's the classic. There was a similar similar character in a film. It's, it's going to be the first of two connections to the Saw films <laughs> I'm going to make. But in, in Saw 2, we get Donnie Wahlberg as Detective Eric Matthews. And he's very much, I am... I have a terrible home life. My entire world is like being a policeman, but I'm a tw- he actually is much more of a knob mm. than Erlander is. But that is such a classic thing of like, no no wife to speak of. You've probably pushed them away for some reason. It's probably to do with work and your children are also very dysfunctional. We see it a lot, don't yeah. we? Yeah, I thought the while we're talking about the relationship with his daughter, that there were some interesting parallels there, weren't there, with the film we watched last week, Let Me Fall? Yeah. Because, of course, in fact, the the daughter almost looked like Magnea, who's the central character in that yeah. film, who plays the addict. And this kind of father-daughter relationship in which there was a similar dynamic as well in that the father is kind of saying, you can stay here as long as you need. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to break your balls for um, being an addict. Well, he kind of comes to that in the end, doesn't he? Um, and just protects her, but is also quite kind of chilled. Let her get on with mm. her life and see if she'll make the right decisions because obviously she's pregnant and he's hoping that will. Uh, yeah, there was definitely a, a, definitely rang some bells there with uh, "Let Me Fall" and the relationship yeah. of Magnera and her father. Completely, and it just goes to show like drugs have mm. always been a thing in Reykjavik yeah. in Iceland, which is not surprising. Mm. And I. The first time we see her, actually, we see her running. She she literally meets him outside of the police station. Like, she's not afraid. I mean, I guess they all know, and they say they all know who she is and what she's like. She comes running out of Klemur, which is the bus stop in central Reykjavik, which at the time was basically just a hangout for the homeless and, you know, troubled people. But it's now some sort of major exotic food hall. Oh, really? Uh, it's, yeah, it's had a rather big makeover. <laughs> I haven't been there since it was like that. Um, but she, yeah, she just comes 
plodding up to the police station, just like, I need some money, right in front of Ellen Borg, his other sort of partner, and makes no bones about it. But Erlander, while he kind of, you, he eventually wants to do the right thing, but at that point, he's just like being quite mean to her, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, but I mean, again, we're back to the same issues that we were discussing last week about the toll that addiction takes on your family and your relationships mm. and how these people are putting put up the inferences that he's put up with years or or months of this kind of cycles of behavior and stuff. So, I don't know, I think we're de- we're definitely on his side throughout, aren't we? Yes. But that's only the partial the very small part of the story that yeah. kind of just feeds into the theme of family as a as a whole yeah which i thought was interesting because it's it's all it's all channeling towards the same theme isn't it because quite often you'll have subplots that explore kind of different themes whereas this Mm. subplot was all about the same thing which is your responsibility to your children genetics um relationships between parents and children and passing things down well exactly what i thought was interesting and it's you wouldn't know it from the film, but later on in the books, Sigurdur Ollie, who in this film is kind of the comic relief, he, he's used yeah. as comic relief. Uh, he, a, a sort of storyline of, of his is that he can't conceive with his wife, I think, and and they start thinking about adoption or, you know, IVF and stuff. And I just thought, fascinating that the one character who isn't really involved in the family stuff in the film later on becomes that becomes quite a big part of his own personal story mm. uh, but Sigurdrolli he's like he's the young he wants to be the cool detective in contrast to Erlander who's who's seen it all like you say wears his lopa pacer <laughs> smoking just standing maskless even when there's like horrid stenches everywhere and their relationship I found to be one of the most engaging yeah for sure for sure and i think that the kind of light relief um offered in that relationship was needed and also was needed mm. for ellender so we see him in a we see him not just being somber all the time and even when um his colleague says oh you know you got your sense of humor back and he says what sense of humor but yeah. still there's there's but that something is, a bit more to him there that is his sense of humor though he's like <laughs> yeah. you think i'm joking I sort of am, but I'm not. But that's I think that the, the, literally the previous line to that is, I think, is my favourite line of the film where Sigurdaroli's like, I think, oh no, Ellen's like, makes you think. And, uh, and Sigurdaroli's like, yeah, people often said I didn't look like my parents. <laughs> and Ellen did turn around and said, I thought, I've always thought this, the same thing. It's like, what? That you're a bastard. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey. I love it. It's, it's very good. He walked into it, but it was very funny. Yeah. Uh, but back to the main story, we find this this man, Holberg, dead in his basement apartment, which is grimy and, you know, the house, everything about this film is obviously it's Iceland in 2008, but Iceland in 2008 looks very much like Iceland probably did in 1962 or something. Hmm. And that basement flat that we find him looks... Oh, it looks unclean. And... Can I also just say I love the the kind of shameless shorthand of being like, he's got a copy of Lolita. Do you know what that means? He's a pedo. Yeah, I was like, very... We said it before. I was on the nose, that one. Like, he's yeah. got a picture of a girl on his computer. He's got Lolita. Yeah, It was like, we've only got a 90-minute running time. We don't mm-hmm. have time to be more subtle than that. You all know what it means. Let's carry but on. 
I was going to ask whether you thought paedophiles actually read Lolita. <laughs> Why are you going to ask me that? I don't know. I know, you're a learned <laughs> person. Uh, I couldn't tell you. No, okay, fine. I just thought, it's just an interesting thought that maybe, I guess, I don't know. Do, do they look up to Humbert Humbert? Do they look for inspiration? I don't know. I'm not sure. What's he in- getting out of that? I'm not just... sure it's incredibly watertight, that that moment there no but we yeah but like you say we it's signposts for us who he is when you very you just mentioned there about the flat being so gross and i think there was quite a lot of grossness throughout yep film but like not in a kind of explicitly gory or gratuitous way but more of just like a kind of way like um the sections where we have say Obviously, we have brains in jars mm-hmm. and we have um, rotting skeletons and things. But the scenes where we have like dead bodies or whatever in in the morgue cut in with meat, people eating meat. There's so much eat, meat eating in this. And that That's to a, a me lot of meat eating. is kind of, I think because we don't actually see that much violence, there's kind of an inference of something horrible happening there. In that when, you know, like when Ellender is eating, first first point here, who the hell gets a sheep's head from a drive-thru? But... Well, I'll address that in a second. <laughs> I'll address it. Fair enough. When he's sucking the eyeball out of the, the sheep's eye head. Eye hole. Yeah. The eye hole, thank you. Yeah, the <laughs> eye hole. There's definitely some kind of visual imagery there, I think, to make up for what we're kind of lacking in explicitly horrible stuff. Heir og rust mína er ég kveina. Varðveit líf mitt fyrir ógnum óvinarins. Skýl mér fyrir bandalagi bófana, fyrir óaldar flokki illvirkjana. Leggja örvar sínar beskirðin á streng til þess að skjóta í leyni á einn ráðvanda. Maybe, but I think the film's so bleak and kind of just, I don't know, vast and just nothing. Very kind of understated in that way. That The moments we do have of actual violence are really kind of brutal and, what's the word, visceral. Like, yeah, it really has an impact. There's only like three moments of any kind of violence. What are you thinking of? I'm thinking sp- explicitly of... Etlery nutting Sigurdr Ollie at the prison, <laughs> yeah. like, lifting up the table, headbutting him, and then sort of fighting with all the guards. Um, did you recognise the actor who played Etlery, by the way? Oh my god, I didn't till this very moment because you saying that is inferred that I should recognise him. Uh-huh. He's from Rams, isn't he? Yeah. See, I knew he wasn't to be trusted in Rams. I knew it. I know. It's it's kind of interesting because he's terrifying. Really, yeah, really scary. He's a really scary man in this. And you kind of, 
his character is it i can't never i can't remember which brother's which brother now in rams but um he's the he's the is he gummy? brother no he's um he's kitty yeah and kitty's the yeah kitty's the more aggressive the slightly more alcoholic prone uh and you can kind of see that it's a, there's the similarity in character there yeah. even though Etlady doesn't have any hair at all <laughs> anyone who has their head that closely shaved yeah beware there's something going on yeah see i could never do that because i have one big mole on my head so if i shaved all my hair off a i wouldn't look nordic at all i don't think but i'd have this very massive... intimidating no not with a big old mole anyway um but there was that moment which i thought was incredible especially like because this the the soundtrack goes we've had all this sort of choral music the police choir Mm. singing at the hymns and stuff and in that moment you in this in the in the mix of the sound you can hear sort of other voices coming from cells and it all rises up and it just it really feels like a really harsh brutal moment and that comes from obviously from the performance of Theodore Ulyssen, but as but also the way it's uh, been soundtracked. You see, character, or so much be clear on. So I got to horror from the ancient humanity. Till them is Stephen Hans. They see a Tussan or Evelyn. See Blake and so Sweeney. Otinas the doctor in the binder. He was really one of the kind of big meaty performances of it, wasn't he? You know, oh, like when we've got man. quite an under understated um, cast of characters so far, really, mm. haven't we? And then he comes in all guns blazing, like some kind of Guy Ritchie um, gangster, maybe. <laughs> yeah. um, like really full-blooded performance which i enjoyed and i thought was quite funny at points as well as well as well, kind of scary especially when he's like crying because he can't handle isolation you're like come on you're meant to be the what do they call him like the most notorious maniac in iceland or something. <laughs> yeah and then so he, they call him that on the way there that erlander sees him crying in his cell and what does he say he says you're the worst kind of moron i've ever seen but i think I I quite liked that actually because he's not like I liked the fact that he's not some criminal mastermind, is he? He's just a big violent thug, really. Yeah. Who doesn't have any boundaries. And that in a way makes him more believable, makes him more scary than if he was, you know, masterminding some evil scheme. Quite. And as far as I'm aware, there's not that much like full-on murder going on in Iceland. Not like Indrithason's novels would have you believe anyway. <laughs> or like if you read every Indrithason, Rauni Jonsson, Irsa Sigurdardatir novel, that's probably more murders than I, th- I assume have ever happened <laughs> in Iceland. <laughs> I, I could be wrong. But like that's basically the only prison as well. And you just think, but what are people going to prison for? Probably just for, like you say, being brutal to various people. I mean, why is he there? Do we actually find out why he's there? I'm not sure there? we find out, but the inference is he's done a lot of bad. He's done a lot stuff of bad in stuff. His time. Yeah. 
especially with the group of men who are the prime suspects. Yeah. One aspect I wanted to mention, which I thought was really interesting, was this like repeated thing that came up again and again about everybody knowing each other. So obviously mm. we have um, Elodie, of course, says to Erlander, you know, slags off his daughter and mm-hmm. says, you know, I know her, everybody knows her and some other things too, shall we say. But we also have when um, I think it's Ellen, her name is the si- the sister. Colburn's of- sister, yeah. Yeah. Um, she says, oh, this police guy. And instantly Ellen does like, yeah, know who you mean. Mm-hmm. Um, That's Runa. Uh, yeah. us on. <laughs> exactly. And this kind of idea that everybody is, is like one stage removed from each other, mm. I think is an important, it seems kind of incidental, but I think it's actually quite important in terms of the idea about genetics and everybody being interconnected. Yeah, that's the it's the theme of the film, isn't it? Like, if everybody knows each other, it must be really hard to get away with murder, for one. Although somehow a murder has managed to avoid being solved for 30 years. I was also uh, thinking just in terms of, you know, saying, do you know this uh, detective? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. And I was like, what? But if you think about, say, if there's 350 people, how many police? 350,000 people, I should say. Yeah. How many? <laughs> how big's the police force? I mean, for the whole country is presumably not going to be much bigger than, say, like a police force in one of our cities would be. Oh, I, yeah, it's not even that, probably. I imagine, like, a couple hundred people, maybe. I don't, I'm, I, I don't have the stats for that, but you can tell. <laughs> you can tell just by the nature of their offices. Like, there's just, there's no, there's, like, no budget or anything. They're just classic little room with a desk, and there's no... I mean, I know we're in 2008. This was a time of like CSI showing how you could zoom in to the tiniest little pixel of a of a number plate. And in this film, you've got basically nothing. But I quite enjoyed that. I think that me- that is something you can tell it comes from a novel, that it's all about talking to people and then picking their connections. Mm. And it's all about kind of establishing relationships and people can characters' narratives. It's not about, like you say... Oh, DNA found in the footprint. We, like, we don't even care about any of the stuff given at, at the crime scene. It's not really even mentioned. Well, no, and I th- I thought I had that exact thought at the end when you see the flashback to the murder. Mm-hmm. And then he's just like clearly hold, bare, in his bare hand holding an ashtray and he drops <laughs> yeah. it. I was like, probably fingerprints on that. But yeah. it's never mentioned because it's not... Because A, they don't have a suspect initially. But uh, it's, yeah, but it's not really... Like you say, it's not really about that, is it? No. It, what it is is just a character drama. Mm-hmm. Um, and if and by focusing on the character, it it sort of helps you lean into that the thought about this whole genetic database and and stuff that that it's is using as a backdrop. It's not really commenting too much on, mm. but it all feeds into the same thing, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and we should probably talk about that because obviously the murder somehow is related to the death of this young girl. And um, basically, in the mid-90s, a, a research company was set up, a private one called Decode, uh, in the attempt to kind of, just to compile a database of all DNA of everybody in Iceland, which is a really good idea in a way, you know, so they can sort of trace lines of genes for disease and then hopefully put a stop to it. Uh, but it was very, very controversial. 
and you know people were against it some people didn't want to put their dna in and end up having to become a voluntary database but then it throws up these questions of like well if we do discover something about a certain familial line that they carry a gene a faulty gene do we tell them Mm. or do we not tell them and let this disease keep going and like i guess the major crux of this film is that one of the characters just accesses the database (laughs) very easily it seems to find out what he needs and that's that kind of leads to the murder doesn't it Mm. i wonder is it saying anything about decode do you think um i didn't read it that way so much actually I read it more as kind of a commentary on the fact that Iceland had this really interconnected genetic history. I mean, obviously it it reveals that it would be a system kind of open to exploitation, mm. but I don't think that they're necessarily shown to be doing something evil. They're not really all, all kind of morally corrupt. The company themselves, I don't think is particularly shown like that. Hugmyndin að gagnagrunnum er svo að draga saman upplýsingar um erfðir allra Íslandinga og nota síðan niðurstöðurnar til að búa til nýjar aðfyrir til að lækna, til að linna þjáningu og fyrir byggja sjúdóm. En gári er það siðfyrlega réttlætilegt að nota persónlegar upplýsingar á þennan hátt? Þetta er náttúrulega erfið spurningamörguleiti en ég held að ef það er einhver réttlætinga á því að nota persónupplýsingar þá er það til þess að finna aðfyrir til að linna þjáningar og lækna sjúdóma. Upplýsingar um arfgengasjúdóma Það eru upplýsingar um sjúkdóma sem flytjast frá einni tínslóð til annarar og þetta er þess hennar vandamál samfélagsins. So also we have, um, I can't remember who it is, it's possibly Erlendur that says, oh you have everybody's stuff on file here, what? And, and the guy that works it says, yeah but in the hope that we can make the future better. Yeah, and totally. It, and I, I feel like that's played quite sincerely. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like it's some kind of corporate evil evil corporate um scheme no i i agree with that um and i think that's that's probably the truth to the real life situation as well but that i think it is interesting i i this is like one of those incredibly vague anecdotes but i know that there's been issues to do with people using stuff like ancestry.com mm. and those kinds of sites where people are, you know when people get their um, like, is it 23andMe where you get your DNA profile done and it can say, uh, oh, yeah, you're 10% mm. Middle Eastern and 20% Northern European. Um, people using that data to get people for crimes because it oh. might not be, not that the criminals would have registered on that DNA database, but say their son or their uncle or their brother has, then it's a match in that system. And mm-hmm. then can be traced back to them, but obviously that's ethically really dubious. Well, sure. The one argument would say, you know, it's solving crimes, so surely that's a good thing, because if you get enough people um, signed up to it quite quickly, you're kind of narrowing off a lot of avenues. Yeah. But then other people would say, I didn't upload my data for that purpose. Quite. You know, especially if it could convict, say, like your own family member. So, yeah, it's an interesting kind of dilemma where when DNA forensics and like genetic forensics, I don't even know if that would be the right word to use, genetic forensics kind of come together. 
Yeah. What I what I read that Decode was trying to do initially was add all this was to get all that DNA information, which does exist, uh, you know, through I assume doctors and things like that and hospitals. I don't know, but like to join that with their because Iceland's got like a complete history of everyone's genealogy dating back over a thousand years and that's all just up on the internet as a database for icelanders to access and have a look at to learn about their you know fairly recent family tree rather than they can't go crazy in depth but like imagine if you could combine that with dna like that would just be absolutely mad you'd just be able to solve all sorts of things probably if you were able to have access to it Uh, but i think the film doesn't necessarily say anything either way, but it's like, look what we've got. Look how it could be abused, but look how it could be useful. Sort of just yeah. showing every every avenue. It, it, I thought it was, it was intriguing, wasn't it? That he was able to be like, okay, there's one person in this massive database that we can connect it back to. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely felt like Again, that idea of everybody's interconnected. It's all part of the same chain link. And and the film does quite a good job of misdirecting you, even though you know it can only be a few people, of like, while they're investigating who Holberg could have raped to produce mm-hmm. another child. I don't I can't remember if I actually knew that there was a child of rape. But the way that you... Because you see Owen's mum at the start, at the funeral for Shola, the young girl who dies... And then you see her get interviewed, but I'm not sure if you're supposed to remember that it's her or not. I didn't. I have to say, you didn't. No. Okay. Because then, so she, at that point, she's saying, "I'd remember if I'd been raped," mm. uh, and just sort of flatly denies that there's ever been any kind of sexual mm. meeting going on. And then I, it's quite actually quite funny when she finally decides that she should admit to have having you know had intercourse with Holberg, but it's way too late, and they already know it's not true. Like you did, you did have sex, but you weren't raped. I chose that was one of the things I was going to ask you. How do you think the film handles the whole rape stuff? Because it seems it a, a bit, bit dodged uncom- to me. Yeah, I yeah. found it a bit uncomfortable. I mean, I would obviously cut it some slack because it's what um, thirteen years old or whatever now. Mm. So I don't think that it would be made now in the same way. Like definitely some of the humor about oh, we have to go and ask all these women if they were raped yeah. thirty years ago. Now. I don't think that that would play for laughs in the same way and it definitely felt slightly uncomfortable. I don't think that it necessarily... I don't think it felt misogynistic, weirdly. I think it just felt ill-judged. And also I would say... um, I just think any kind of storyline I would be wary of that would have a woman falsely crying rape because I just think that's, you know, difficult territory to get into when... Obviously, the majority of cases are not that. Um, Mm -hmm. I just think it's a a slightly... That's the noise I would make. That's That's basically the noise that ran through my head during... Especially the car scene where they're discussing how to approach it. And then... Because I can see why it's funny. Why the Mm -hmm. knocking on the door and not knowing how to deal with the situation. Oh, how's it going to... But then I actually just yelling... Have you been raped at an old lady? Isn't I isn't think really funny, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna say no. Yeah, it, yeah. It definitely 
maybe hasn't aged well in that regard. No, I think there may be that that's kind of the one hangover from yeah. 101 Reykjavik baby in Kormakur's kind of writing. Yeah. That he hadn't quite let go of his kind of lad yeah. part of his brain. Because there's even a joke about animal sex in the film, like there was in 101 Reykjavik. I don't know if oh, you spotted that. that. Mm. When he's looking at the porn magazine in the lorry. Yeah. It's just like, what? I mean, it's just a little aside, but weird. I don't know whether Cormacur's kept one in every one of his films since. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I hope not. That wouldn't be a great calling card, would it? No. It's a bit of a, like, ooh, shocking, you know. <laughs> We're so shocking. Yeah. We basically have Erlander is hunting down the murderer. He they've spoken to Etlady about what he knows, which isn't that much really. And so then it's we know that it's like there's a group of absolutely despicable men working together to just be assholes and sleeping <laughs> with lots of people. And um and it, obviously it turns out that Urn's mother did sleep with Holberg and the, their child is Urn, who carries the faulty gene, which is what Uyther died of, which is what Kola died of. And is that enough of a motive, motive for murder? I'm not sure I, I'm not sure how much I felt uh, Urn's sort of final moments. So I actually... I think on paper, when you put it like that, then no, it isn't. But I think it was quite well kind of played out in that obviously he hadn't intended to murder him. He'd gone to his house to confront him Mm. and things escalated. And that to me felt more, did feel kind of relatively believable that he was, you know, they were tussling, he was provoked and he was also very disgusted with this man that he just found out was his father obviously Mm. that's quite traumatic and dealing with the death of his daughter which obviously then his father because he's the carrier of this genetic disease is an easy vessel to blame for that so yeah 
I know what you mean that perhaps it was a bit like um, played out like a lot of murders on TV do play out, you know, a confrontation that then leads to violence. But mm. that's probably how a lot of murders do play out. So yeah, I thought it was relatively convincing. And we'll come back to some other stuff, but the final shot, that obviously, so that's one other moment of violence. And then the final moment of violence is when Erlander brings the brain from which we haven't even we haven't spoken about Jar City at all yet. I have a lot of um, issues with taking your brain home to your flat with you. Okay, go on. I feel like that's very unethical, isn't it? Well, I quite liked how casual everyone was about everything. Like he talked about <laughs> the the coroner or the pathologist just eating a hamburger or chicken while he's got the heart on the plate, um, and Erlander just walking out of the nondescript building behind the church just with a bag with a brain in it just felt as natural as anything really there to me. surely should be some checks and balances to make sure people aren't just taking a brain home with them yeah but there doesn't seem to be much security anywhere at all <laughs> in this place like Ern manages to just you know defraud his own company and then yeah. go to a random building which isn't attached to his company and just get a brain out Oh, I felt like, mm-hmm. yeah, there was a bit of kind of um, uh, narrative. Uh, sweeping under the carpet. Sweeping under the carpet, <laughs> thank you, of certain aspects such as that, which is, you know, oh, yeah, I know I know that brain. Come with me. Here we've got a load of fetuses in jars, a couple yeah. of brains, a couple of legs and hands. What do you need? I don't believe that there's a, there's a room somewhere that have... A random selection of organs in it. Uh, That's well, why have they kept a brain from thirty years ago? I don't know, but it without it makes the, sense. without the parents' permission. So, well, they. I mean, they try to explain that away, don't they? It's like we could. They bur- the body was buried without the brain, and they couldn't just like mm. exhume it and put the brain in. So it had to be kept in formaldehyde or whatever they said. I'm Is not that sure not I a normal thing? That. No. Well, we'll have to ask in. I don't know, whoever, Indritherson, when he wrote the novel, whether whether he researched it, whether that's true, whether there really is a room full of brains and fetuses and all sorts. And that's the other moment that I was going to say looks a bit like Saw. It's so green. Like mm. Saw 2 is the greenest movie I've ever seen. And that room look and the corridor outside it just look exactly the same. You could have taken that shot of them walking in, seeing all the gross things around them. Just put that, supplanted that straight into like a, a corridor scene of uh, of a saw film. When you're talking about um, it looking green, just a note on the like aesthetics that it definitely yeah. had the like crime drama of the two thousands aesthetic. I'm thinking of like Memento in mm-hmm. Seven. You know, Memento's really like washed out and kind of um, grey and bleak. It definitely had that aesthetic to it, didn't it? Definitely. I mean, it's it looks like a scandi noir mm. of the time like it was behind girl with the dragon tattoo it wasn't that far behind but like the rules or the the aesthetics have been sort of established by that point like even the bridge which comes after it is so just gray like st- like malmo and copenhagen aren't just gray but they do just look gray whereas here we've got it's very blue and very mm. white like i think most i think it it's the flashbacks that are mostly blue um, but the the film as a whole is just very kind of stark and white and grey. And a lot of that is because Iceland is very much those colours all of the time. <laughs> uh, 
And I quite I quite like that it felt very Icelandic because like we've we spoke about it before, but this is the first time we've actually seen like proper aerial shots of everything Iceland is famous for. So you mm. see lava fields. I think even the cemetery that the the that the bodies are buried in is a lava field. Um, so you see that you see steam rising, you see waves crashing, you see just little churches dotted in the landscape and just everything that people would imagine mm. is here. And that might even be part of the reason the film was such a success outside of Iceland. It's like Scandinoir had become a huge deal. And then suddenly there was this unfamiliar world of Iceland, which people had heard about or were aware of these various things. And it's all here. Yeah. Uh, it very much looks like a, yeah, Nordic Nordic noir <laughs> for sure. And actually you talked about Seven and Seven was a massive influence on Saw as well. So it all comes oh, full circle. Yeah. Stop bringing everything back to Saw. <laughs> so I've got Saw on the brain for another <laughs> podcast, okay? Uh, yeah, but circling right back to that moment when they're at the grave and Erlander's delivering the brain mm-hmm. to Urn so he can put it in the ground with Uyther. That's the third major moment of violence, isn't it? Did that come as a surprise to you when Urn turns a shotgun on himself? No, I think... There's only one way this film is going to end, right, at this point. Because also, I think we're, we're not meant to hate Ern, are we? No. We're definitely meant to kind of sympathise with him. Perhaps not, obviously, with the fact that he did a murder. But <laughs> he's not murder. He's murdering for, if not good reasons, then understandable reasons. Greed. Yeah. And... And like you said, he didn't mean to murder necessarily. Exactly. So I think quite often, don't you think, in in things like this, if there's a a murderer that we're on board with, they have to die at the end. Because we don't want to see them just carted off to prison and they have to go to trial, blah, 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 and all the implications and the paperwork. And that is exactly why the end of Dexter was the worst thing ever. Why? What happened? well, it's been out for a long time, spoilers. <laughs> Dexter does not die, and Dexter should absolutely have died mm-hmm. at the end of the final series of that programme. They probably wanted to keep it open just in case they wanted to bring him back. Well, they have, and there it's coming go. back this there year. There you go, that's why. To, to give him a proper ending, so hopefully he'll die this year. Um, But no, I think that quite often you're like, well, there's only one way that this is going to end here. Yeah. And there are obvious clues to the happening from the beginning, like... The moment when Erlander meets Urn at the genetics laboratory, like, well, obviously. It's been... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, if you haven't already figured it out, because it is a fairly straightforward, it's kind of twisted. Also, didn't but... he give it away? Because Erlander said, I'm here to see a brain or something. And he and was he like, knew exactly oh, which I know the brain. Got it. Come with me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, alarm bells should have been ringing right then. But then that might be an example of sort of Erlander's stoicism. He's just like, I'm not going to react. I'm just going to leave and I can't remember what exactly he does next, but I'm sure he knows. I'm sure he got an inkling. And then obviously they find a sawn off shotgun end at the bottom of the bed, which happens. I'm um, obviously that happens like two minutes before we see this scene. But, you know, mm. I think he did have to die. Didn't mm. he? But then the good news is <laughs> no more neurofibromatosis in Iceland. Hooray! Not that because he could have just never had another child. That would have done. And it would have been okay. Yeah. But he didn't. 
killed himself. So that was pretty sad. But overall, it's a it's pretty thrilling yeah, film. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Zips it. along. It's a yeah, just just kind of a classic Scandi Nordic noir crime thriller, but very much an Icelandic story. Yeah, and that even and a lot of that is just due to the smaller details. Like we'll go back to the Svith that you talked about earlier. Svith being the boiled lamb's head. Not for me, I think. No, no definitely not. But it looks so enticing. Anything with an eyeball, especially anything that's mm. grey as well, is not for me. I just loved. I just love that you can go to a drive-thru and get get one though. It's amazing. So that that place, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if it's still like that because I've not been there for a while. But that's the main bus station. The other bus station. You see both the bus stations. You have a very in this intimate film. knowledge of the bus stations of Iceland. Well, it's because they know they in Iceland. It's so perfectly planned for tourists that you get off the plane and no matter whether your plane has been delayed for any amount of time there will be a bus there waiting to take you into town and to take you specifically to where you're staying as well oh it's incredible but they all go and come from that bus station bsi bse i'm assuming is the way you pronounce it in icelandic i'm not sure but that is where the famous restaurant with traditional icelandic food is it's at the bus station. <laughs> so he goes and gets his sheep's head, which is just a, a reg- clearly a regular thing for Erlander mm. because she, she's asked him if it's his usual. <laughs> Can you imagine eating that every day? Ugh. I know, like we said before, like they, they is, lamb is a kind of staple food in Iceland or sheep in general. And he eats, um, Ava cooks a lamb oh, stew, yeah. which looks, I'm not sure how good that looks either, but better than the sheep's head. <laughs> Uh, but those just those little details Uh, and the way actually the way that Sigurdsson eats that sheep's head on screen is if it's not acting if it is acting that's a masterclass in eating something revolting Mm. but I'm I'm assuming he probably does eat it in his real life it's probably delicious I can imagine the little bit of like cheek meat would be I'm willing to accept it might be delicious but I still am fine not eating it but if we were given the opportunity to go and try it, would you try I'd it? I'd try it, yeah. 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 Okay. Go on then. As long as I was served it through a drive through hatch. Okay. Where would you take it then from there? Because you wouldn't eat it in the car like a Mackie D's. Nah. You'd have to sit outside and eat it, I think. <laughs> this, has got, this has gone off grid, this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Where would you eat a sheep's head in Iceland? Well, in terms of what makes it really feel just Icelandic, it's even things just like the jumpers worn by the detectives and mm-hmm. and the kind of little um, sea um, wind-beaten 
shacks that we see. Yeah, more corrugated iron. <laughs> yeah, those little details definitely feel Icelandic. Yeah, and it, and it's that dark humour as well, which is what Erlander really gives a lot. Like even the moments when, because everyone's smoking again, and Sigurd is like, he's just had his nose broken. He's like, can you not smoke in the car? And he's like, just wind down a window. And we get like the wide shot of the, the Land Rover driving down Route 1. And it's abs- it's like it is outside my flat right now, just blowing a gale, like a bit of snow. It's like, yeah, that's Iceland. Why would we open a window? <laughs> you know, disgusting. So yeah, that was Jar City. A very Icelandic crime thriller. Yeah, would recommend. Would recommend. Sadly, they never made any more of them. Like, because there's a whole series, obviously, of books. Which seems strange if it was one of the best-grossing films in Iceland. Yeah, it's kind of weird, isn't it? You'd think you'd say, well, we made it... I don't know, obviously, how long it took to to produce and get the funds and stuff. But as a major... As the number one film in Iceland and a major seller, Mm. you'd think, yeah, keep going. But there you go. I'm sure they'll make it into a TV series one day. It'll just be the... It'll be the Icelandic Wallander... (laughs) Although I think Cormac has said that he wouldn't do it himself because obviously he went and did Trapped, which is found out third series later this year, which is very exciting. Uh, and obviously they could, there's plenty more stories to, to write, yeah. plenty more murders to uh, to stick in the Icelandic landscape, <laughs> you know. So, uh, so, yeah, thanks very much once again. Thanks. What have we got coming up next week? Next week, a very different film, part real, part fictional. Okay. When you say part real, part fictional, do you mean part documentary, part drama? That's exactly what I mean. Yes. Okay. And I'm gonna be I'll be interested to rewatch this one to figure out what's what. Ooh, okay. Lovely. And it's very recent actually. Jumping around with our times here, but that's okay. Yeah. So I'll see you back here for that then. Excellent. Thanks again. So there we have it. A taut and engaging crime drama with some great performances. What did you think of Jar City? Is this a superior Cormacor film? A faithful adaptation of the novel? And does it hold its own when compared to the Swedish or Norwegian crime adaptations? I'm thinking The Bridge because that's just so bloody good. Or The Killing. Let us know your thoughts on Twitter where we're at Kvikmindapod. That's K-V-I-K-M-Y-N-D-A-P-O-D. And if you enjoyed listening, please leave us a rave review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help spread the word and get us seen and heard by more people. Oh, and that film we'll be covering next week that I forgot to name will be Runa Runason's Echo, or Bergmol, from 2019, which is currently streaming on Mubi. For the most recent film so far on Kvikminderpod, we're hanging around Reykjavik for a very special time of the year. Christmas and New Year. It promises to be exciting. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Tack Thanks and goodbye.